0: Hi, this is
1: Damien from New City, Orlando. You're listening to our CBR Bible Project series, where each episode we introduce a different book of the Bible as it coincides with CBR. To learn more about Community Bible Reading, or CBR, visit newcityorlando.com forward
0: slash CBR. Well, this is Benjamin Kant, and I'm here with Nate Claiborne, and we are going to discuss the Gospel According to Matthew. And we're going to talk about why is this important as we engage it in CBR? Why is this particular gospel important? What does it help us see of Christ? And what might be helpful for us to know in order to read it more wisely? So Nate, I want to start there and just ask you, why do you think the gospel of Matthew is important to read? Yeah, and that feels like such a softball question because yeah. with some parts of scripture,
1: it's well, why should you read Numbers or why should you read Ezekiel? And you you can get to a a really solid answer if you think about it. But with the Gospel of Matthew, it's like, well, it is the story of Jesus. So I'm not sure that we could find a more important piece, even if we want to say all of Scripture is inspired by God and all of it's profitable for certain things. But Mm -hmm. to get the story of Jesus is very important. And I think Matthew specifically is probably important because it does the most overt job of connecting the story of Jesus to the story of Israel. Mm. So if, you've, if you're if you reading the Bible straight through and you just finish the Old Testament, it's a good way to introduce not only Jesus, but how Jesus completes the Old Testament in a certain sense.
0: So really it stands not just as the introduction to Jesus, but as the whole New Testament, which is fitting given its location as the first book of the New Testament. Is that is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah,
1: and I think we, we don't want to get too far into far into chronological details of which gospel writer wrote first, but even with consensus tending towards Mark being the first gospel, it's at least interesting that Matthew's placed first for the reason that it introduces things a little bit better. And I think the early church recognized that, and as they started to circulate these gospels together, Matthew ended up taking the lead-off position. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and even the way that Matthew begins, the book of the genealogy... Of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham and that that word genealogy there is the Greek word Genesis yeah. it's where we get the word for the first book of the Bible the beginnings the the intro the the way in which we're getting into the entering into this um, and and so then we get this genealogy of Jesus and if you're uh, a close attentive reader of this text you'll realize that there's a few names that set apart right it's uh, that he is in verse 3 it says by Tamar in verse five, by Rahab, by Ruth. In verse six, by the wife of Uriah. And then you get finally to the, towards the end of verse 16, and it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mm-hmm. And so in this long genealogy, you get these five women who, <laughs> Nate, I know you know your Bible well enough to know. These women are not uh, the kind that you want to bring home to your parents typically, right? Right. Um, what do you think the point of that is in, in the way that Matthew sets this out? Well, it's
1: so it's interesting who he includes, who he doesn't, and like you said, they, there has to be some theme. And even then, we're we're tipping our hand interpretively by saying Matthew didn't just include a bunch of names just because he picked certain names to highlight here and there. Um, but I, the way I've looked at it, as I'm looking at these names, you've got Tamar posed as a prostitute at one point in time. Rahab was a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ruth wasn't a prostitute, but she was a Moabite. And Mm -hmm. if you know where the Moabites came from and their backstory has a weird sexual past to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we get not called by name Bathsheba, but if you know the story, you know it's the wife of Uriah, who's a Hittite. So presumably she's also a Hittite. Um, And so what we could say is the four women before Mary all have Gentile connections, but also have weird... Questionable backstories, mm. sometimes leaning towards the sexual. And so when Mary is a 13, 14, 15-year-old pregnant girl, uh, and that's going to overshadow her for the rest of her life, like mm-hmm. regardless of who Jesus becomes, people are always going to remember, oh, well, she's the girl that got pregnant and mm. wasn't married to Joseph yet. And she says it's the Holy Spirit, but who can believe something like that? And so I think it prepares you for God works through these types of stories. Mm. It doesn't make them automatically wholesome in some cases, mm-hmm. but it it's not unusual. And so it prepares you for what's going to happen in the very next section where you find out, oh, this Mary girl gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She's not married. That's Jesus's mom. And then that's going to be part of his story moving forward.
0: hmm well, and even as you said, how Matthew connects us with the Old Testament so well uh, and and as we 're looking at jesus 's family tree here we 're seeing that God has the ability to draw straight lines with crooked sticks right mm. he's he 's got these people that he 's weaving into the into the lineage of the Christ, right? A right. pretty significant person. And, and Matthew is highlighting the fact that some of these people are the lowest and the least of these. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a significance in the fact that Matthew himself is likely to be Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, right? right? Also one of the lowest and the least of these, despised by his own people for, in a real way, selling out to the Roman oppression. And, yeah. And so Matthew seems to be highlighting the mercy of God towards sinners in that God would even include them uh, in in the family tree of God's Son becoming a human. Mm-hmm. Is there anything other than that that's significant about Matthew being the author of this gospel?
1: Uh, well, I recently—there was a book by—we'll uh, put this in the show notes, but his name's Patrick Schreiner. Um, and he leans into Matthew thirteen fifty two as kind of a way to— um, And he's borrowing this from another earlier author, I think, or at least other authors have said this. But this idea that uh, this verse, and the verse reads, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And so he kind of leans into this idea that uh, Matthew has got some level of scribal training, and so he's weaving this story together, pulling from things of the old, Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, but also talking about the new and kind of weaving them together in this way that he was apprenticed to do so by mm-hmm. Jesus. So it kind of entails Matthew. It's connecting to that it's Matthew, the disciple, but also he has some type of scribal training.
0: Mm-hmm. So what he's doing as this tri- scribe that's... Um that's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is he's bringing together some of these themes and, sh- and threads from the old Testament and weaving them in through Christ and showing us what that means for, for who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you, as you discuss that, I want to hear w- As we're about to embark on reading through Matthew, um, what are some things that would be helpful for us to know, maybe about the structure of the whole book, or that would give us a a, a big picture, so as we're reading through the, you know, so we don't lose the forest for the sake of the trees, if you will. What are some things that would help us as readers make sense of the gospel? Well, I think it's it's
1: instructive that it starts off saying it's the genealogy of the genesis of Jesus Christ, and then mentioning David and Abraham specifically. So that kind of clues you in on the front end that there's something about Jesus particularly being David's ancestor and particularly about being Abraham's ancestor. And so that forces you to lean back into what was kind of the unfinished business in both of those stories. And in David's case, it's mm-hmm. the idea that David's going to have a son that's going to reign forever on the throne. Kingship. The kingship, the, the Davidic covenant promise to David in Second Samuel 7. And so we see if you really are familiar with the story of David, which Matthew's assuming you are, is why he doesn't have to mention Bathsheba by name. Mm. You'll see the connections between Jesus is the king and he gets anointed as king, but yet he doesn't ascend to the throne immediately. Just like David is anointed by Samuel, but then he's chased by Saul. He's living in caves. He's, running around, hanging out with the Philistines, the Gentiles, and then eventually he makes it to the throne and we see that that's kind of the way Jesus' story in this gospel unfolds. He's anointed as king or proclaimed to be the king but then he's immediately tried to be killed Mm. by this evil king uh, and ends up in exile, ends up on the margins of society, up in Galilee of the Gentiles, which I think Matthew points out more than other gospel authors that that was mostly Gentiles up there. Mm. I think sometimes we as readers 2,000 years later who don't pay attention to geography as much may just hear Galilee and be like, oh yeah, whatever, that's in the promised land somewhere, not realizing that's not anywhere near Jerusalem. That's way far away in a different province, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just those types of story, like understanding the stories of the Old Testament, but as you and I were talking about before we came on here, there's this very overt structure throughout Matthew's gospel, and you can you can work backwards from it. If you look in, we'll give you the references here, but in Matthew seven twenty-eight, eleven one, thirteen fifty-three, nineteen one, and twenty-six one, there's this phrase, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished, and it's at the end of a sermon, basically, mm-hmm. or a block mm-hmm. of narrative. And so we realize there's these five main narrative blocks in Matthew, but those are all preceded by A chunk of stories. And so there's some narrative and then there's this block of Jesus teaching Mm -hmm. and then the scene shifts to something new. And that's a, in a way you could look at it as that's kind of presenting Jesus as this new Moses figure. Mm. He's, you have the five books of Moses are foundational to the old Testament. And now you have these five teachings of Jesus as foundational to the new Testament. Mm -hmm. But then you also, if you think about Jesus's birth story and you think about Herod, and Jesus escaping into Egypt to get away from Herod, and you think about Moses' birth story of escaping from Pharaoh and just sort of these resonances that seem very overt. Um, But even when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, we think of the parallels of the story. Moses goes up onto a mountain and receives the words of God, but now it's actually the disciples who go up onto a mountain and receive the words of God, Mm -hmm. but now it's God with us, God in human flesh, God among us. It's not God in the cloud writing with his finger onto these tablets. It's Jesus in flesh and blood. And so in a sense, the disciples are taking the place of Moses wow. in the Sermon on the
0: Mount. Yeah. It's always amazing to me the when you can kind of zoom out and see the architecture of a whole book mm. and how this gospel is truly mastermind, right? I mean, there's there's not this sense of, when I sit down to write a paper, oftentimes it's like flow of consciousness, and then I edit some important pieces <laughs> to yeah. make sure it makes yeah. sense, right? Uh, whereas Matthew and, and the other authors of the, the Bible are so meticulous and nuanced, and, and every single word, every single way they like frame things out has so much, so much significance to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we were to zoom in on there, you've got these five teachings of Jesus, maybe the most famous one, the first one, which is the Sermon on the Mount right? Um, chapters five through seven and Jesus is teaching on what does it mean to be in the kingdom, to enter into the kingdom, right? This, this, uh, the beatitudes it begins with the blessed are the poor in spirit. These Mm -hmm. are the types of people that are living in the kingdom, right? Um, and then we move on from there. He's got in chapter 10, this kind of missionary teaching as he's teaching about how to expand the kingdom and, and sending his disciples out, chapter 13 you've got the parables of the kingdom right the kingdom of god is like a treasure hidden in a field or something on those lines um and then in matthew 18 through 20 uh, the fourth teaching is this kind of upside down kingdom Mm -hmm. that the way in which jesus rules as king and the way that which people live in his kingdom is quite different from the way that gentiles king gentile kings rule um that the greatest among you is going to be the servant of all uh, Jesus himself the king modeling that first and foremost. And then we f- the final one, the fifth one, chapters 22 through 25 is this kind of clash of the kingdoms and you get the woes and you get these really difficult to understand kind of section of of the gospel of Matthew before his betrayal and crucifixion, but but seeing cr- the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world clashing with one another.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it just it's interesting if you if when you find those little keys of themes that unlock this substructure that's there. It just makes me think about it. this is one of the reasons why of the writing of commentaries on the book of Matthew or any book of the Bible, there there really is no end. And yet at the same time, we could always use another deep engagement with the text because there's just so much there to uncover. It's mm-hmm. it's not like you you read it once and now you've got it down. It's a, There's a depth and richness that is not what we find in modern writing in a lot of cases. And mm-hmm. so it's worth wrestling with over time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite ways of understanding that is that the Bible is meditation literature, right? That's the genre it's written in. And so it, it opens itself. It unlocks, uh, it, it kind of expounds itself to those who meditate on it, which is reading and rereading and rereading and rereading slowly, meditatively. Right. Um, and without that, we, we won't have the understanding that, that these texts have for us. So, as we kind of transition towards what does this actually mean for us now? Like, what might Matthew um, uniquely say to us as the people of God in the 21st century? Well, I
1: think he, it, the, the idea that Matthew is a disciple and he's a disciple who has these, this scribal background or the scribal ability, is he's trying to call other people to be disciples like him. So he's, in a sense, modeling how we follow Jesus by paying close attention to what Jesus said and did. Mm. And so for us today, it's still the same thing. How do we follow Jesus? We pay close attention to what he said and did. Mm -hmm. And Matthew gives us a good broad range of all of that with the addition that Matthew not only helps us see what Jesus said and did on earth, Mm -hmm. but if we really think Christologically, Matthew can help us unlock what Jesus said and did through the Spirit in the Old Testament as well, and Mm. helps us be better readers of that story. Mm -hmm. So It's kind of forward and backward looking
0: at the same time. And so Matthew invites us into what it's like to be a scribe, one who pays close attention, who is going to be uh, taking words really seriously mm-hmm. um, as we try to understand Jesus. We're going to need to take Jesus's word seriously. Right. So Nate, as we kind of draw towards a close, what's your favorite part of Matthew? What are some parts that particularly resonate with you?
1: Well, I always enjoy the, around this time of year, we're getting close to Christmas, really mm-hmm. leaning into the, the birth story and just feel like there's always something new to see there. Um, and i i try to just in teaching with students we go over this a lot of times but really try to actually live inside what it would have been like and how um what would it have been like to be mary for instance or what would it be Mm -hmm. like to be joseph and just thinking through how it would have felt to hear this news that we feel like oh i've heard that before but like this was really good news god with us emmanuel has come Mm -hmm. but not in the way you expect it's uh pregnant teen mom, mm-hmm. and it's people who live on the margins of society. He's not being born into a palace. He's being born into a manger. Um, and just really the, the, the first chapters, I feel like I always see something new when I'm reading through it. And one of the things that stuck out to me recently was when it talks about Joseph in verse 19 of chapter one, um, this idea that her husband, Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly after he's found out the news that she's pregnant and i think it just it causes us to rethink what we think about justice and mercy because mm-hmm. if he were being just it seems like he would have enacted whatever punishment was deserved mm-hmm. but yet he's being called just and is showing mercy at the same time and it just clues us into this idea that early on we can't use jesus or any part of jesus's story to pit justice and mercy against each other mm-hmm. as if they're at odds, somehow they are entwined together and we we see that right in the first chapter and then you can kind of trace it out from there
0: yeah that's powerful and we get to meditate on these passages as we prepare for Jesus uh, the coming of Jesus advent and then Christmas of course um, well so you chose a favorite text from the beginning I'm going to choose mine is from the end uh, the very end that is um, in matthew 28. Uh, in verses 18 through 20, this mm. well-known text, right? We, I'm almost hesitant to call it the Great Commission because then people just immediately have this preconceived notion of what I'm, what I'm going to talk about, you know, world evangelization or something like that. Even right, though that's right. a really important <laughs> piece of what this text is urging, but I do think the the fact that this whole book began with telling us that J- who Jesus was, first of all, his name, Jesus for he will save his people from their sins, right? But then second of all, in that very passage, it talks about how Jesus is Emmanuel, God mm-hmm. with us, that in, in verse 123, we see um, this picture of Emmanuel, God with us. God comes to us as Jesus, right? But then when we get to the very end, we see the promise that ends the entire book. Jesus makes this promise to his disciples when he's up on the mountain and he's giving them the Great Commission and he says to them, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we began with God with us as Jesus, and we end with Jesus with us as God, Mm, right? This one who's got all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who's been crucified and risen again, the one who has the authority to send out his disciples to say, go and make disciples of all nations, because all nations belong to me. Um, And and then this, uh, I, I think particularly I've been reflecting a lot on baptism, And what it means to have uh, the name of God put on us. Mm. Um, Particularly at the end of our worship services, and and many Christians have done this throughout history, that we end worship by putting the name of God on people, by giving them what we call the benediction, right? Uh, The Lord, Yahweh, bless you and keep you. Yahweh, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh, lift up his countenance upon upon you and give you his peace, right? Right. And in in number six, it says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Mm -hmm. And when do we find a threefold name show up again? (laughs) We get to Jesus and he's saying, hey, when you go and make disciples of the nations, put my name on them, which is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, this threefold name of God. And I just think, man, the 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 fact that what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to have His name put on us, um, to belong to God, to have our identity fundamentally changed, and then to be taught to obey, to observe everything that Jesus commanded us, um, summarized in the commandments of love: the Lord your God with all you are, and yeah. love your neighbor as yourself. Right.
1: Yeah, and I think I'd, I've always struck by that passage too about how it's the singular word name, but then three people are listed. Mhm. And it's a lot of times you get people saying, "Oh, there's no the Trinity's not in the Bible." And then sure, the word Trinity's not in the Bible. But if the parting command of Jesus is for people to baptize in the name and then he lists Father, Son and Holy Spirit, if there mm-hmm. are three people who share a single name, you have tr- you have diversity and unity in one. You have Three persons, one God, being affirmed implicitly just in the concept of it's only one name of God, Mm -hmm. yet it's the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
0: Yes. This God is Emmanuel, God with us, right? Well, Nate, thanks so much. Uh, thank you as the listener. If you heard some creaks and cracks in the background, it's because this is our first podcast in our new podcast right. recording space and area. And so uh, you might get used to some of these sounds that you hear in the background. It makes it feel like you're more in the room with us. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> well, we hope that this will be helpful for you as you delight in and meditate on and live out the gospel of Matthew as we're engaging with it as a community in community Bible reading together.